Good evening, everyone. Hi, welcome back to Ground Waves. Really wonderful to be together again. The American-born Israeli author, journalist, and Hartman scholar Yassi Klein Halevi has been researching the evolution of Israeli Jewish identity as experienced through its musical culture. Later, I'll drop a link to a podcast in which he's interviewed about his research, which I'll now try to summarize. His is a somewhat romantic view of Israel's musical history, and as with all brief summaries and discussions, there's much complexity and nuance that can get lost, including in this story, the influence of Arabic culture on Israeli music. But it's an interesting story to begin to learn in light of our theme tonight. Our friend and colleague here, Dan Nadel, is obviously a much more knowledgeable um, resource in these matters. And Dan also has an insightful perspective on this subject as well. Now, because of traditional prohibitions on making material art, something that we spoke about when we hosted Juan Sanchez on Ground Waves, literature and music became Judaism's primary art forms. Israeli music is distinctive in how it brings these forms together by fusing modern melodies with classical Jewish texts, whether the great Zionist poetry of Bialik, Goldberg, and Alterman, or the lyricism of the ancient Jewish liturgists. Yassi speaks of music 
as the setting for where the Israeli Jewish soul is most fully expressed. He notes the passion for Shirat B'tzibor, communal singing, and how Israel's deepest reflections on war, on history, and on politics are often given voice through its music, making it a window into its deeper cultural transformations too. The question of whether Israeli Jewish identity should be forged from the Jewish diasporic experience or from a new native Israeli experience lay at the heart of early Zionist debates and also had a musical form to it. In the early decades of the state, the music of the kibbutz tended to be secular, reflecting the governing elite at that time. It was music composed in the image of the new Jew, draining swamps, planting crops. It was productive, strong, and proud. It was set to the words of the great poets of that founding generation, words that drew not on 2,000 years of diaspora existence, but from the new and immediate sources of Jewish imagination. This grew to include also some conflictedness and even cynicism about kibbutz culture, as it sang of both the optimism and the angst of that generation. In the early 1980s, Israel underwent a cultural revolution as the old Ashkenazi secular labor Zionist guard gave way to what had been the suppressed Jewish majority from Muslim countries who had been treated as outsiders by the power brokers of Israeli society. It was a time of social, political, and musical revolution as the people and culture from the margins moved to the center of Israeli Jewish life. Along with the deeper integration of Sfaradim came bands that combined genres of music like Eastern European Hasidic rhythms with the sound of Indian sitars uniting different Jewish musical diasporas while amplifying those that had been silenced. The music pulsated with memory, with loss, and with some resentment, even as it tried to offer a different, more inclusive model of Israeli Jewish culture. Yassi sees this as the musical beginning of the re-Judaization of Israeli society, restoring those missing 2,000 years of a diaspora spiritual consciousness along with its musical sounds. Another transformation was audible in the music and poetry of people like Meir Ariel, a paratrooper in the Six-Day War who fought in Yerushalayim and in the summer of 1967 composed a riff on the iconic Yerushalayim Shel Zahav that he called Yerushalayim Shel Barzel, the Jerusalem of iron, not of gold, but of iron. It sang the paratrooper's version of Jerusalem as a city of war and trauma. He became a singer of Bohemian Israel. He sang about drugs and homosexuality and about the Palestinians and about demythologizing the IDF. He brought what Yassi calls edginess into Israeli music, expanding its social lexicon. If Israeli music up until then had been a source of innocence and idealism, artists like him made it real. Meir himself underwent his own transformation, becoming a Balchuva, and started singing about his discovery of Jewish spirituality. He became, Yassi says, a bridge figure as his music started to bring secular and religious Israeli Jews together by mixing secular and religious themes in a reimagined spiritual framework. The suicide bombings of the Second Intifada in the early 2000s moved war from the battlefront into people's neighborhoods, shattering Israeli Jews' sense of stability and safety, 
raising questions about life's meaning and about mortality and launching a period of deep spiritual seeking. Among the first people to harness this energy were musicians who fostered a sense of unity by bringing together piyutim, liturgical poetry, with pop music, and through music, bringing more healing to the Ashkenazi Sephardi divide by inviting more voices into the national reimagining of Israeli Jewish identity as more began to take ownership of Jewish religious tradition without being limited by it, not being limited theologically or by way of religious observance, or even musically. Paitanim started playing with rock stars. Musicians were rewriting Jewish liturgy. Religious and secular Ashkenazi Sephardi started listening to the same music, deriving different messages and meaning from it, but being held by it together. And not necessarily in a traditional religious way, but in a way that also gave voice to questioning, to doubts, to existential angst and yearning. What this musical story of Israel's cultural revolutions reveals, says Yassi, is Israel's endless ability to surprise itself and to continue to reinvent itself. That once it opened itself to the cultural richness that its Jewish immigrants brought from around the world, it allowed for what had been seen as taboo in its early years. That is the exploration of the deep religious and even mystical roots of secular Zionism and the continuation of our eternal struggle by believers and non-believers alike with the Holy One, living up to our name Yisrael, the one who has and will wrestle with God. Or if, you're in, if you'll indulge me, if we pronounce it more imaginatively or midrashically, Yisrael can be read as Yashir El, the one who has and will sing with God, which is after all, another name for life itself. is the principal violist of the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra, which she joined in 1984. Miriam has degrees from Yale University and from the Juilliard School, and has served on the faculty of the Buchmann Meta School of Music of Tel Aviv University and the Nordic Music Academy in Denmark. She's given master classes in Brazil, in Chile, in the United States, throughout Europe, and in Israel. Miriam has performed as soloist with the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra and with the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra, and with Pinchas Zuckerman, Yitzhak Perlman, and Yo-Yo Ma at Carnegie Hall, and at the Salzburg Festival. 
She's played chamber music with world-renowned artists and under the batons of world-renowned conductors. Miriam is an active participant in the orchestra's keynote program, which brings music to thousands of school children every year. We're gonna hear more about that program in just a few moments. This interview with Miriam was pre-recorded in light of the time difference between here and Israel. So if you'll give me just a moment, I'll be ready to present Miriam to you so that you can hear her amazing story. Welcome, Miriam, to Ground Waves. Thank you so much for your time. It's great to have you with us. Um, let's start. Tell us a little bit about your background. How did you come to be the principal violist for the Israel Philharmonic? Well, how much time do you have? It's kind of a long story, <laughs> but uh, I'll just give you the basics. Um, my background is that I was born in Philadelphia. I went to... Uh, Jewish day schools, belonged to a conservative synagogue. My rabbi ultimately became the vice chancellor of the Jewish Theological Seminary, had a fantastic chazan, Charles Davidson, also a composer. Wow. Um, I'm one of five kids. My parents, uh, my father's an amateur violinist, my mother's a pianist. They had five kids to make sure that they got a string quartet out of us. <laughs> Uh, at the ripe old age of six months, my father looked at my hand and he said, she'll be the violist. So at six months, he bought me a viola, which actually then sat under the bed until I was big enough to be able to hold it until then I had, I had, I was forced to play the violin uh, with my sister. He waited until she was two years old to make sure that her hand was big enough to be the cellist, which, um, She's uh, also a f wonderful cellist, but uh, that's not her profession. I'm the only black sheep in the family who insisted on becoming a professional. Um, wow. We were not supposed to become professional musicians. I did not follow the plan. Huh. Um, yeah, well, I studied in Philadelphia and ultimately I went to Yale and then to Juilliard uh and then i was at marlborough and then i decided it was time to make aliyah now i mean you wouldn't think that this is a natural progression i went to jewish day school they had a very uh, they did have a zionistic outlook on things however my my desire to go to israel really stems from the fact that my great-grandfather in Hungary was a leader of his Jewish community. 
in the area where he lived, and he actually was a Kabbalist, and he went to Tzfat several times. This is, we're talking about the early 1900s. He actually had uh, 17 children. Uh, wow. You know, in those days, you, you, a wife would give you eight kids, and then she, unfortunately she would die in childbirth, and then you needed another wife to take care of the eight kids, and then she had another however many. Anyway, he managed to go to Tzfat, in Palestine and also to the old city. And he was, he had fervent hope of bringing his entire family to Palestine. He came back to Hungary um, and in 1920, unfortunately, uh, he was coming out of synagogue and he was murdered, probably by the Hungarian army. It was a, a time of great unrest uh, in Hungary. And so, of course, the family was then thrown into, I don't know how to say it in English, but the, it, was a, it was a mess. Uh, my grandfather took the lead and took all but one of the siblings and decided the best option was to go to the United States. So he took everyone to the United States and um, he had uh, children, my father, I always think of the irony of how my father was uh, fought in World War II, and he, when he got to Europe uh, to liberate uh, Buchenwald, he actually didn't know it, but he had eight second cousins in the camp. Oh my gosh. And just the irony of this one 18-year-old coming from a democratic country where, as, a, as a, a victor, as a liberator, someone giving life to these poor people who, unfortunately, fortunately they lived because they were under 18, but you know, because of what was going on in Europe, they were victims. Yeah. Uh, same family, same age practically, and different outcomes. Yeah. But anyway, I am rambling. My parents took us to Israel for the first time in 1968 when I was 10 years old. I played chamber music in a, in a very, very nice chamber music festival. Uh, then we came back in 1971 and my grandfather came with us and he actually had a copy of Herzl's book at his bedside, uh, The Jewish State, and I remember that quite clearly. I played in the uh, Israeli army, the Gadna Youth Orchestra at mm -hmm. the time. Um, and then in 1973, I made a deal with my parents and somehow I was 14, they let me come back to Israel for the summer by myself. I had $200 in my pocket, I had my viola, and I said, I'm going and that's it, you're not stopping me. Anyway, I went, had no idea where I was gonna stay, no idea what I was gonna do. I had absolutely the best time of my life. I was in a chamber music program that I managed to get into as an Israeli because I spoke Hebrew because I had learned it in Jewish day school. So I didn't get charged the $2,000 that the Americans had to pay. Mm -hmm. And I, that was the same summer that was, I had a, a coach who asked some old guy, also a violist, he, he said to me, tell me Miriam, what are you gonna do when you grow up? I said, well, I, I know when I'm 18, I'm gonna join the Israeli army, become a paratrooper and that's it. He said, no, you're not. You need to go to university. You need to learn something and you need to bring it back with you to Israel when you come. 
So that got filed away. And of course, I didn't come to Israel when I was 18 to become a paratrooper. Instead, I went off to Yale to study viola with a fabulous viola teacher and also wound up being a literature major and then went to Juilliard for my master's. And as life, as the circle of life goes, when I came back to Israel, I actually made Aliyah because I wanted to live in the most beautiful city in the world, which was Jerusalem. I got to Jerusalem, was sitting last chair in the Jerusalem Symphony. And suddenly I heard this unbelievable sound. It was so beautiful. I turned around and of course that was, I looked, saw my first glimpse of my future husband, who was a clarinetist in the orchestra. However, I only lasted for one season, and then I auditioned for Zubin Mehta, and he took me into the orchestra. And lo and behold, whose job was I getting? The coach that I had had in 1973 wow. was retiring from his job, and I got his position. Wow. So that's how I wound up in the Israel Philharmonic. That is an amazing story. Wow. And the way you, you are able to weave in your own family history. I'm, I'm looking at Har Meron behind you um, and Sfat behind yes. you. And it, it sort of all comes together. That's beautiful. Just as a quick aside, you know, most of us seem to know less about the viola than, than we do about other instruments. Why do you think that is? Yes, well, we get a raw deal. Actually, the viola is really the heart of the orchestra. Hmm. Now, you could, depending on how the orchestra's sitting, you might just think that there's a group there, there's first violins and there's second violins, and then you think, what is this, like, third violin? And then the cellos and the basses. Well, we're not third violin, which is one of the reasons why I like to sit on the side and not next to the second violins, because we're a very, very distinct voice. We, we have the notes between the violin and the cello. We're an octave above the cello, but we're tuned the same way. And the sound of the viola is so sonorous. The thing is that you might not be able to pick the sound out when you're listening to a piece, but if we were not playing, you would say, what's going on here? Something very vitally important is missing because it's the beating heart of the orchestra would be missing. And so you would feel it. Hmm. Interesting. Just pay more attention next time. Interesting. Um, you know, a similar question. So many of us have been blessed to spend time in Israel, but don't seem to know much about the Israel Philharmonic. Um, can you share a little bit of its, of its history, the background of its musicians, and anything unique about its mission? I certainly can, I'll be happy to. Um, the history of the Israel Philharmonic is really a parallel to the history of Israel, because um, as Herzl's vision was to establish a state uh, for Jews because there was so much anti-Semitism going on in Europe. Well, in 1936, a violinist named Bronislav Huberman decided that he was going to try to save all of these Jewish musicians who were being thrown out everywhere. Uh, they were being thrown out of orchestras because they were Jews. He went around, he gathered up the best musicians that he could find. Now that doesn't mean that he took one person here and one person there. He took entire families. 
he took a person, their, their spouse, their children, and everyone was sent off to Palestine to play in the Palestine Symphony Orchestra, um, which is what we were. Uh, and I think the total number of people that he managed to save was about a thousand mm. of people who would have otherwise perished if they had remained in Europe. But that's how the orchestra was founded. Uh, the first concert was conducted by Arturo Toscanini. And it was, of course, a smashing success because you had all of these refugees from Europe who were culture starved and they wanted music. And, and here was an orchestra. And the only thing was that they needed a place to be. They needed a place to play. Um, throughout our history, there, of course, have been uh, ups and downs and what's been going on in the country. Um, and people like Leonard Bernstein and Zubin Mehta have always been there. And we have been in the public eye every single time. I mean, in the founding of the country, 1947, 1948, Bernstein was here for months and he conducted everywhere. He conducted uh, in the desert um, while battles were raging. He said he, he conducted one concert in Rehovot where there were sirens wailing and he played a Mozart Mozart uh, concerto, and they said that it was the most amazing second movement that anyone had ever heard. And Bernstein said, of course, he thought it was going to be his last performance ever that he was ever going to play in his life. He was so terrified. Um, so he was there in 1967. He was there on Mount Scopus. He, uh, and uh, Zubin has been with us. And well, Zubin was there every single time there was any kind of conflict, he just flew straight to Israel. Even when we couldn't perform in the Mann Auditorium because it was too big and they wouldn't let us when there were scuds falling in 1991, the scuds that were coming from uh, Iraq. Uh, Zubin took us to a small theater and we just continued to play. That's the same uh, time period as when you saw, it might've seen Isaac Stern wearing a gas mask. Mm -hmm. But also the orchestra is really the greatest cultural ambassador of the state of Israel because we have been all over the world at crucial times. I mean, personally, I, I was, some of the experiences I've had, I can't even begin to describe them to you, like playing Hatikva in Warsaw for the first time. Mm. Uh, um, for me also playing in Germany for the first time, for me was, was but uh, yeah, uh, I don't know. The orchestra is a very, very important, important body. And culturally, I don't think anyone represents us, uh, represents the country better. Curiously, um, what is the makeup of the musicians? What's the sort of composite picture, if you could give us a quick snapshot? Well, it's a melting pot. What could I tell you? Originally, it was Europeans who all came uh, because their lives were being saved. Then, um, as that generation started to fade, then the Russians started, when they started to be liberated from the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union, they came in waves. And there were certain waves of Russian players who were Many of them were phenomenal. And they came and they filled the ranks. We've also always had a very small group of Americans who have been uh, around six, seven, eight, whatever it varied. But um, 
you could hear, when I came to the orchestra in 1984, you could hear every single language, anything you wanted to hear, Hungarian and Romanian and uh, Italian and um, Russian, of course, Lithuanian and Latvian and Yiddish and uh, English. You could hear everything. And actually, that's one of the things that gives the orchestra its unique character because all those people who came, I would say even from the beginning, the people that are in the Israel Philharmonic, first of all, they're in Israel. And that means that they had some kind of passionate commitment to the state, which is how they got there to begin mm -hmm. with. You know, you didn't have to yearn to get out of the Soviet Union and go to Israel. You could have gone to America, you could have gone somewhere else, but these people wanted to be in Israel. So you wound up with a lot of kind of ferociously passionate types of people. I, I won't say present company accepted because I might actually fall into that group, but, um, and that gives a certain character to the music making because it always sounds like, not like we're fighting for our lives, but we're playing for our lives. And in some instances, we really are. Mary, so, do, you, do you hear Arabic amongst the musicians now as well? You know, if only, if only we would have Arabs come and audition, and if they played well, they would be welcomed with open arms. We, we have plenty of uh, Arab collaborators who work with us uh, in, in all kinds of programs and as soloists. Um, we have plenty of Muslim soloists, uh, some of them famous, some infamous for like Fazil Say, who uh, used to come all the time and then he was put in, he was imprisoned in Turkey. Um, but Yes, we, we wish, we wish that we had an Arab population and, and part of our education program is endeavoring to reach out to the Arab population and to bring our music to them as well as bringing their music to us. Nice. That's a good segue for us to talk a little bit about something that you raised when we had the chance to talk first um, a couple of weeks ago. You spoke about music as a catalyst for social change. I was very taken by that. And specifically, you, talk, you spoke about the Israel Philharmonic's keynote program. Tell us a little bit about keynote, how it works, and whether that's unique to the Israel Philharmonic or whether there are other orchestras around the world that have similar yeah, programs. When we spoke a few weeks ago, I told you that I was certain that there were other orchestras that had similar programs. And then I went and I did some research and what I discovered is that our program is one of a kind. Huh. There That's are, not... well, <clears throat> I can tell you that when I was very young and we, I first was in the orchestra, I remember that we tried to give concerts for high schoolers or junior high schoolers. And we didn't exactly know how to do it. So we thought they might make some noise. So we put them up in the balcony and invited them for a concert that was about an hour long. They came in, they were unbelievably noisy. The conductor came out, they didn't shut up, they still were noisy. We started to play, we were playing, it was almost impossible to play because they just weren't listening. They didn't seem to even be aware that there was a concert going on in front of them. And this was seemed to me a very grave situation. I was not the only person who was 
affected by this. And uh, in the early 2000s, our principal base, um, Peter Mark, had made a connection with Richard McNichol in the London Symphony Orchestra. He was running something called the Discovery Program, which was an outreach program which went into the schools and which got the children involved in the music making and then brought them into the concert hall. And this seemed like a very worthwhile endeavor. We wanted to start somewhere in it with an outreach program. So a bunch of us stayed on after a tour to England and we studied with them and we studied how to do it. And then they threw us in front of a girls' school and said, okay, it's your turn, go ahead, teach them. It was, it was really like getting thrown into the deep water, but it, it was very effective. And we brought all of their teaching methods back with us. And we started this program, which we ultimately called Keynote. Now Keynote evolved into something unbelievable. First of all, let me tell you what we do. We take a program, we, we plan a program of music that we want kids to hear. Then someone, usually a member of the orchestra, will write an arrangement. They'll take like an entire piece and they'll, they'll, they'll narrow it down to three parts of music so that it can be a trio, so that three people playing three different instruments can go into a classroom and they can play a distillation of these pieces while teaching them, the kids, about the composer, about the music, um, and also involving the kids in some way so that when they come to the hall, they're, they're, they're involved in something. They might have something to do, even if it's just something small to do with their hands. Anyway, so these three people go in, usually in conjunction with the music teacher of the school, if they have one. And we also have, uh, we're connected to um, a school, a college called Levinsky College, where they prepare uh, people who are studying music to be the moderators, to be the speakers, to be able to present us. So, the, and originally the musicians did it themselves, but to tell you the truth, I have been in groups where we would look around one at the other and think which one of us can actually speak the best Hebrew in order to <laughs> communicate with these kids. So we have uh, totally Israeli moderators who who connect with the kids. And we also, we, we describe the instruments, we play for them, we show them all the effects that we can do, we show them what composers can do. Anyway, we managed to bring over 20,000 kids a year I mean, not now, of course, COVID has destroyed absolutely everything, but we do, we are doing other things. But uh, in terms of going into the classroom, now, when you say outreach, tikkun olam, um, what we can, what we're doing for the community, you have no idea what I see when I go into these schools, because we don't just go into the schools of the rich kids, we go to everywhere. We go into the Arab Muslim schools, we go into the Arab Christian schools, we go into the schools where the kids are the children of uh, Chinese workers, Filipino care workers, Africans who managed to get to Israel and they have kids, or a Sudanese kid whose parent walked across the desert to get to save their life. You can't imagine what these classrooms look like. 
and we teach them and they love it. They learn and when we bring them to the hall and let's say they've sat there in utter silence. You can't believe me. You must, you must come and see it for yourselves to see what these thousands of kids in a hall look like when they're listening to a concert for which they have been prepared. And then at the end, maybe we'll have an Israeli song and they'll all be singing at the top of their lungs. You have these Chinese, Filipino, African, any kind of Asian kid you want. We have any, mm -hmm. any, everybody. And they're singing at the top of their lungs in a 2000 year old language, which is our language. And now it's their language. And you know, they, they change us. It's not just that we're changing them. They change us. Now, in these programs, we also bring kids from the north, um, like we can bring a whole Darbuka orchestra from an Arab village in the north They come and they play for these kids in, who live in Tel Aviv and don't have exposure to this. I mean, the concerts are so well planned and organized and coordinated. And these kids love it and it's real education and we don't just we don't just go into the those into the underprivileged and the wealthy whatever i can remember going into a cloister school where it was a school for kids who come from completely destroyed homes where they absolutely could not live with the parent who you know damaged kids and I remember walking in with a trio and thinking, oh my God, how are we gonna play for these kids? They were just, these are kids who have violence as their language. You know, they had a mother who was a drug addict, so the only way they could communicate with her would be to turn a table over on her head. I and mean, we're talking about serious, seriously uh, troubled children. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, well, we'll give it our best shot. The split second that we started to play, silence, utter silence. These kids just were transfixed. They were transfixed. They couldn't, I couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe it. And you know what? A month later, I was in the hall. I just played one of these youth concerts and I was walking off the stage and suddenly I hear this screaming coming down, not from the regular seats, but they, these kids have been put up in the side seats for the latecomers because mm -hmm. they guess they didn't want them mixing with the other kids. These kids came streaming down the steps screaming, Miriam, 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 Miriam. They just wanted to see me, wanted to talk to me, and they wanted to tell me that they were there and they heard the concert. Beautiful. You can't imagine what Beautiful. that does. You just can't these, know. These stories are, are amazing and they're so inspiring in the way uh, that you describe music as being able to be a source of of healing and of unity. Miriam, we only have a few minutes left. Can you can you give us any insight um, just, just quickly into whether um, music has been able to override some of the other contentious dynamics um, that, that sometimes greet Israelis when you, when you travel the world with the Philharmonic? Um, what has that experience been like? Well, many times we have, well, first of all, we travel, of course, with heavy security because we have no choice. And many times we're faced with uh, anti-Israel demonstrations. We're told, don't go in this door, don't go in that door, just go around the back. And that's usually, you know, we deal with it and it's fine. The people that really want to hear the orchestra are inside and they're showing their appreciation. And when we play Hatikva, you can be sure that 
a lot of them are singing along. Um, of course, then there was the famous concert in 2011 in Royal Albert Hall in London, where we just couldn't play. It actually reminded me a little bit of that first concert with the teenagers up in the balcony, because every time Maestro Meta lifted his arms to try to conduct, someone screamed out, free Palestine, or uh, in the, at the, towards the end of the first piece that we were playing, an actual choir that had bought tickets and were in the fifth balcony started singing Ode to Joy. I mean, that's, it was pretty serious. The concert was being broadcast by the BBC and at some point they had to stop broadcasting it because the screaming and the fist fights and what was going on. I'm so sorry. I don't know. Can you hear me okay? I'm so sorry. I don't know what uh, what happened there. Um, give me one moment. I'll try and see if we can get the, the very last few moments of her interview. I'm so sorry. I, I don't know what's happened. We seem to have run into some technical difficulty. Last part of our interview with Miriam, but perhaps uh, we've seen certainly uh, more than a taste of the tremendous experience that she uh, that she's had. And I will just tell you that in the final moments of our interview together, um, Miriam reiterated um, how excited she would be for us to come and visit her and, uh, and to bring us into, into um, the Israel Philharmonic to meet her and her colleagues and uh, to really give us a firsthand experience of the different programs that she's offered. So I hope you enjoyed listening to her and learning from her. Uh, an amazing set of stories of how music um, serves in so many different ways to be um, a powerful cultural force in Israel. I'm going to turn it over to you, Dan. Yeah, I, th I just want to say, I think those were probably some of the disruptors from, uh, from the London concert. Oh, <laughs> just as she was talking about it, right? There, right? Ay, ay, ay. All right. Um, so something completely different. Um, this, this relates to what Dini is going to talk about next and what she was discussing when the program began. So I'll play um, a, mel a Moroccan melody for uh, Igdal, for the Piyut of Igdal, that's uh, based on a traditional, very traditional Moroccan melody, not Jewish, uh, called Bin Pladi, uh, the girl, girl from my village.
done. That's beautiful. What a great melody. Next time you have to sing it for us too. <laughs> So it's a beautiful melody. Yeah. I want to share um, a fascinating teaching that I discovered in my in my studies um, on the a link between music and social change. Exactly what Miriam was speaking to us about in those last minutes of our interview with her. Justice activists here around the world have used music to attract others to their cause and to energize their supporters. We know how the blues gave social and political voice to African-American communities in the wake of reconstruction in the 19th century and in their move away from the South in the 20th. We know how free jazz in the 1960s animated the black nationalist movement. Music, of course, fueled the civil rights movement in so many ways as it did the movement protesting the Vietnam War. Music galvanized the anti-apartheid activists in South Africa. Just today, Andy and I were talking about a particular musician. Uh, what was her name? Miriam, Miriam Mandeba, I think it was. Sorry, I'm getting Makeba. wrong. Miriam, Miriam Makeba. Andy, I would ask you to sing one of her tunes, but, uh, but, 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 but I won't. I'd be, I'd be better at a mind dance. <laughs> I'm okay now. I'm hearing Miriam. <laughs> She's with us. <laughs> Can you hear her? No. I'm sorry. Mir Miriam Hartman's interview just started up again. Anyway. Um, music, as we know, galvanized all these social change movements across the world. Um, also in the UK, the uncut protests um, from 2010 against cutting public services, and of course, more recently in the Occupy movement. John Paul Lederach is an American professor of international peacebuilding at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana. His work focuses on conflict transformation through social healing. He emphasizes the restoration of voice, both the individual regaining their voice and the community engaging their voices in meaningful conversation. Something that requires, he says, a container or space within which people feel safe, but are also close enough to hear and receive the echo of each other's voices. In an interesting um, piece to his approach, Professor Lederach uses the metaphor of the Tibetan singing bowl as one that brings together voice and container. You know, those beautiful bowls that if you can, can emit sound either from tapping on them or from stroking them in circular motions. And the professor teaches that like musical resonance, social healing doesn't arise from the individual. It emerges from the interaction of so many different vibrations, individual and collective, held within a community context. In other words, social healing and reconciliation emerge in and around the container that holds this collective process. The bowl metaphor shares many of those properties. The circular movement has a ritualistic quality, he says, creating a certain kind of space and moment. And the bowl creates the space or location from which the sound is coaxed and held. And in terms of movement, 
The sensation is one of going deep, going deep that's made possible by the circling. But there's also a rising in the way that sound not only seems to rise from the bowl, he explains, but it expands and it moves out and it touches and surrounds the space within its reach. This sonorous circling and deepening and rising are all aspects of percussion, which is often described as the heartbeat of musical performances. Metaphorically, they're also core to this conflict transformation. The circular motion gathers people together in an ever-expanding embrace. The deepening is what happens as understanding and commitment to the cause of healing and justice takes root. And the rising suggests the collective vision that emerges out into the broader community as a catalyst for change. You know, our mystics teach us that the world was sung into being. And Rav Cook spoke of the song inside every human being. In our community, we know that music is more than just an aesthetic enhancement to our gatherings. It's a language of prayer. It's a language of introspection. In fact, it was Dunn who taught me years ago that the human heartbeat is the very first musical rhythm to have shaped human consciousness. As we strive to bring ever more justice and healing to the world, let us keep making music alone and together. And when we unite, Let's make sure to keep our ears attuned for those whose voices and melodies have not made it into the circle or who've been silenced. And let's always keep adding to the harmonies that we sing and to the symphonies that we compose. Running short on time, so I'll, I'll play a short version of what I had prepared next. Um, but this is a very interesting uh, case. Usually when you hear uh, songs that come from uh, Jewish sources from North Africa or the Middle East, they're taking local melodies that were popular and then superimposing Jewish liturgical texts over them. And uh, this is a case where a very well-known uh, rabbi in Morocco in the 1960s, uh, Rabbi David uh, Abu Lafia, he heard this, this melody come from Israel. This song was called Babel Wad, which was a song that was written after uh, Israel's War of Independence um, by the poet Chaim Guri, and it reflected the experience of the, the Palmach um, warriors who made it into Jerusalem and uh, were trying to get food and, and water to the, uh, the, 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 the Jewish sections that were under siege. And it's a song that basically sanctifies the warriors, uh, their memory, even the weapons, and this Moroccan rabbi response to it was writing lyrics that are saying, war is folly. Um, he, he called this, Binu namordim, listen, O rebels. And uh, he ends his, his poem by saying, for the sake of peace, uh, God is willing to erase God's own name. And uh, there's a fascinating video online. I'll try to find it before the program ends, maybe, and share it, um, if you understand the Hebrew, between this poet's son, who's a professor of uh, math and philosophy at the Hebrew University, and Chaim Guri, who's the original poet when he was still alive, and who had no idea that this poem was written, inspired by his poem, and sort of a, an, a response to his poem. So I'll, I'll just play the melody one time, which is interesting, too. Thank you. 
That's so beautiful done. Please, if you can, um, drop those links into the chat so people can, uh, can find ways to listen to more. Friends, next week on Grand Waves, we're going to be welcoming author Nessa Rappaport, whose new book, Evening, will prompt a conversation between us on the themes of grief, memory, and identity. The following week, December 21, we're going to welcome Jody Bromberg of 18 Doors, formerly interfaithfamily.com. We'll talk about multi-faith and multiracial Jewish families and individuals and the growing diversity of our Jewish communities. There will not be ground waves on December 28th. We're going to take a break for a week, but we'll be back the first week of, uh, of 2021. This coming Wednesday night, our Justice Beit Midrash is going to be gathering for uh, a deep dive into Jewish texts on this question of how to argue on the sacred art of disagreement. And we're going to cap off our current theme of building sustainable democracies with a special guest teacher again next week. Um, that teacher will be announced over the next coming uh, next couple of days. And uh, Ground Waves will also take a break, not Ground Waves, our Justice Baby Josh will also take a break and reconvene in the first week of January. Um, Thursday night, this coming Thursday night, December 10th, we invite you to join um, Andy and me to light the first night of, uh, of candles for Hanukkah, the first candle. Although I guess that kind of depends on Andy's timing. If she makes it up here, she's going to be driving up to meet me here in the Laurentian, so it might just be me. Um, Friday, the 18th of December, not this Friday, but next Friday, we invite you to join us for a beautiful Kabbalat Shabbat service, the end of Hanukkah. And on Sunday, December 20th, we hope that you'll join the Armchair Pilgrim Supper Club with Rav Chaim Avadja and Dan and some special musical guests as we take off for Mumbai. Keep your eye out for special recipes and uh, articles on um, some background for our trip. If you're new here tonight, we're thrilled to have you. Please make sure to drop your email into the chat so that we can add you to our email distribution list and make sure you get information on um, the many wonderful programs and opportunities to gather together here at Shar. And if you're so inclined, I invite everyone to stick around for a few minutes after we close with a prayer to have a chance just to say hello and, uh, and wish each other a happy Chanukah, which is coming up in just a few days. Our, our closing um, offering this evening comes from the words of uh, the poet Rumi. We are all the same. Listen to the reeds as they sway apart. Hear them speak of lost friends. At birth, you were cut from your bed, crying and grasping in separation. Everyone listens, knowing your song. You yearn for others who know your name and the words to your lament. We are all the same, all the same, longing to find our way back. Back to the one, back to the only one.
So great to be together. See you again soon. Stay safe, stay healthy. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Miriam. <laughs>